When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 32 of our study, Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And in this episode, um, Moses instructed Joshua to go fight the Amalekites. They won. And so Moses set up an altar for God and he put um, a banner, the Lord is my banner on that altar. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my provider. The Lord is the one who goes before me. Uh, Moses is always doing these things. It's pretty interesting. But whenever Moses has a victory or Moses, uh, something great happens, he he builds an altar to God and he gives thanks to God. And what a great, great thing to do. Every evening before we go to bed, we could build an altar of sorts and thank God for the blessings of the 24 hours that he gave us. Every morning we could wake up and we could thank God for the opportunity to serve him in that day. And I think having that attitude of gratitude and thanks for God and all that he's doing, all the blessings, all the gifts, all the talents that he's given us is certainly a great way to live our life. The first thing it does is it helps us focus more on God and his blessings and his grace than it is on our doing and the things that we do. Because honestly, we're not all that great people and we do things, you know, not perfectly. And so we mess up and and just understanding that we're not perfect and that we mess up is a huge growing thing for all of us. And knowing that God still loves us, that he still cares for us, and that he can still use us in the kingdom, even if we've messed up, is just an amazing gift from God. So today is a new day in God and uh, it's a new day of blessing. But now we're going to get into another story in Exodus, one that probably you've heard about before, but it's going to be fun to go through and we're just going to spend some time in that this morning. So we're going to start reading. We're now in Exodus chapter 18. We're going to start reading in in Exodus chapter 18, beginning of verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, and the father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So um, some point along the line, well, we've heard of Jethro before because uh, Moses had met Jethro in the wilderness and had married Zipporah. Now he has children. He goes back, he fights Pharaoh. And apparently at some point in all of this, Moses had sent his wife and two sons to go back and live with Jethro which is probably a very smart thing to do. If you're a commander of an army, the last thing you want to do is to have your family surrounding you because a spy could come in, steal your your spouse or your children and use that as ransom. And those are very difficult situations. So probably surreptitiously or hidden or whatever, Zipporah is sent back to live with Jethro, uh, who is Moses' father-in-law. A very wise man. He's a priest of Midian. So apparently he's a holy man. Uh, We'd heard this before when we met him earlier in Exodus. 
Um, one son was named Gershom. Ger, a foreigner Shem place uh, in this place or that place, a, a foreigner in the land. Uh, so one, one of the kids is named Gershom because I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. The other was named Eli Eitzer. Uh, Eli is my God or God. Eli is my God. Uh, Etzer. We've heard of Etzer before. When we, when we studied Genesis, when, when uh, Adam said, I need a helper, God says, well, I'll make a helper for you. The word for that was Etzer. So Eve was, was Adam's Etzer, her, his helper. I think it's translated in the King James as help meet, uh, but it's basically someone assists or helps or whatever. So uh, Eli, my God, Etzer, my God uh, is, is my helper. Um, my father's God was my helper, according to the translation here. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. It's interesting they always name these kids just something that comes out of their head that's going on through their life. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, having a son named God is my helper uh, is just a, a great way to remember all the time of the blessings of God. We don't do that anymore. Although I'm David, which is beloved in Hebrew. So um, every time I think of my name, I think that I'm beloved by God. How about that? <laughs> all right. Uh, verse five. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Um, Now that Moses is out of danger, Jethro's like, I don't want to raise these kids. I'm too old for it. I mean, how old do you think Jethro is? Moses is 80. Of course, back then... A man was a lot older than the women. Uh, you, you could have 20 or 30 year age difference there, no problem at all, kind of expected by society. If you're going to be the provider of the family, then having a little bit of experience and perhaps saved up some wealth, uh, all these things are very, very helpful. And so these are the things that a father looks for in a daughter. Now, a daughter, you know, it's nice to have somebody who's, you know, young and handsome and all that sort of thing. But but a little bit older and stable and has some uh, means and experience in his life is not a bad way to go either. Um, and even in the even in the history of the United States, I think he might be dead by now, but the grandson of like the sixth or seventh president of the United States was still alive recently because his first and second wife died and he had a third wife and there's probably a 30 or 40 or 50 year age difference between the two. That was kind of standard in that time period in the 1700s. And so that grandson of that president was still alive up to about a year ago. So even in our history, we see that kind of thing. But but Jethro doesn't want to, Jethro does not want to raise these kids. And plus he wants them to be with Moses. This is his daughter. This, you know, he wants her to be with her husband and the kids. So they all come together as a family. And verse seven, so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all these good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. 
Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So nothing pretty unusual here. Moses has his father-in-law there. So like, we're going to cook a meal. We're going to give thanks. We're going to find, we're going to do a burnt offering. Uh, we're going to do a sacrifice. We're going to eat a meal. He had told his father-in-law about all the things going on, about how God had rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. And and remember, at some level, uh, Jethro had input into this because this is his son-in-law. He wants his son-in-law to be successful. He wants his daughter to be successful. And so he was part of Moses's journey early on. So to be able to hear how God actually did rescue the people out of slavery in Egypt, it must have delighted him to no end, to know that God had done this. It's interesting, he says that your God, or the God, not your God, that uh, praise be to the Lord, Remember, this is a capital L-O-R-D, so this is the proper name of God, Yahweh. Um, Praise be to God who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and Pharaoh who rescued the other one. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than other gods, for he did this. So I don't know if he's, I mean, you, you could say, well, that there exists other gods and Yahweh is the greatest of all those other gods. Or you could say, in the face of my enemies and their gods, and the, one, and the gods that they follow, but our God is greater. Our God is greater than Pharaoh's God. Our God is greater than the Amalekites' God. Remember, they just had a battle with the Amalekites. Our God is greater than all the gods. And eventually, um, they, they specify or say or come to the conclusion that there is only one God, that, all, that there are no other gods. This is the one God. And so if you are making sacrifice or praying to any God that isn't Yahweh, that God doesn't exist. There's only one God, and it is, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Moses. It's the God of Jethro. That's the only God that exists. Um, and then they have this uh, meal, bring the elders together. Aaron's there, and they all sit around. Her is not there, although her could have been one, one of the elders, but he's not listed here. Her is one of the guys that's on Moses' arms to lift up Moses' arms in the battle against the Amalekites. So we move on to verse 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? So Jethro, um, oh, I didn't show you that, but that, that was, um, that was uh, Exodus 18, 13 through 16. Um, like, why are you doing this? Why do you sit alone as a judge and everybody's coming around you from morning till evening? And it must have been very taxing on Moses to hear all these cases and to sit there and judge between these cases. Now, why is it Moses? Well, Moses is the quintessential leader of the people of Israel. And everybody trusts Moses. And everybody wants Moses to make a decision. If you have a conflict between two people and you can't work it out, what do you do? You go to Moses. 
And Moses is the one that, you know, can decide. Now, what's interesting in all of this, um, I got to kind of set this up a little bit, but um, at some point, somebody has to make a decision. And when that person makes a decision, they're going to make the one person really, really happy and the other person very, very angry. So, for example, if you have two kids and uh, they're fighting over something and you know that this fight's going to go on forever until something is decided, so they, you get involved in the fight because you're the parent of your children and you make a decision about how this is going to go forward. Well, one of the children is going to be happy and one of the children is not going to be happy. Unless you, as a parent, can figure out a way to kind of lessen the blow to both. And a good judge listens to the merits of the case and tries to satisfy as much as possible between two people. But sometimes it's just impossible. And so somebody's going to get hurt. And somebody's going to be angry and somebody's going to be upset. And that's why they go to Moses. Because Moses has the goodwill of the people. Because he was the one who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And so as Moses continues to judge between the people, he is going to lose a little bit of political capital because the people that don't, you know, that don't like his decisions may very well say, "Well, he's not my Moses. I don't I'm not going to follow Moses." Or the longer he's in this position, he gains political capital because he's seen more cases uh, he's been a judge for a long time. He understands these things, and so he tries to judge fairly. The one thing that we want in any judge is for them to judge impartially. That's why we have as the symbol of the United States of the judicial system, the judge system, this lady blind with a blindfold, and she's holding the scale of justices in her hand because that's what we want. We want people who listen to the merits of the case and judge fairly based upon the facts of the case. Now, what's interesting in the United States is that our Supreme Court, these are who's supposed to be ruling and making judgments, blind judging. And yet it seems like over the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years that I know of the Supreme Court, there's this feeling that the judgment happens based upon the president that appointed the Supreme Court justice. And so there's this sense in the United States that justice is no longer blind. And I don't like that at all. I don't like it when these media come together and they talk about a decision that was made by the Supreme Court. And then they go off on, well, this one was appointed by this president and this one was appointed by that president. And of course, this is the way they're going to judge. And I think it's a horrible disservice to our Supreme Court to think that they would judge based upon who, uh, that they would say, well, I was appointed by this president, so I'm going to follow this president's policies. That's not what a Supreme Court justice is supposed to do. Now, it is okay if they have a deep internal sense of what justice and fairness is based upon how they were groomed and how they believe and all that sort of thing. And that might match up somewhat to which president appointed them. But even with that, there's supposed to be impartial judges listening to the cases and judging based upon 
kind of set precedents in the Constitution and, and how they've been appointed. Um, but we are sinful people. No one is perfect, and so no judge is perfect. No previous law and case was perfect. We live in an imperfect world. It's a pretty good system, but it's not a perfect system. Um, and the reason why I bring all this up is because it is hard, if you are a justice or a judge, it is hard to be in that position. It's hard to say yes to some people and no to another person. That's called leadership. That's called judging. And if you are appointed to be a judge, you do this as best as you can. But, you know, at some level, you brush it off and say, well, I was put in this position. I'm supposed to judge and all that sort of thing. But I think what happens and what I wanted to get to is that we don't we have a substitute for the merits of the case anymore. And that is called kind of science. And what do I mean by that? Well, years ago, uh, in a previous life, I was a transportation planner. And a transportation planner is one that looks at existing traffic conditions. And then a developer is saying to the city council, we're going to develop this piece of property. And this is what we want to do. And the one thing that, that always comes up is how is this going to impact traffic? And so the developer has to do what's called a traffic study. And in this traffic study, somebody does some calculations to show this is what the conditions are like now, and this is what the conditions are going to look like in the future. And if those conditions get too bad, then the development is denied. But a council person or somebody who sits on the town council or the board of supervisors or somebody making the political decision will understand, okay, this is what the impact of that development is going to be from a traffic standpoint. But they have to weigh the other side of it, which is, but this development may bring in more money. It may bring in more tax base. It may be a benefit to this. Like the people might really want this development because it's a really, really good development. And it, the impact is not so great that it overweighs or overshadows the benefit from this. And that's where political people come involved. And I was involved in this for years, decades actually, involved in these kinds of decisions. And what I found out is that most leaders that are put in these positions rely heavily upon the quote-unquote experts that are going to tell them what it's going to look like or what the impacts are going to be. And the fact is, is that even the experts can get it wrong. Sometimes I would say this is what's going to happen, but it's a guess and the development actually happens and things change and it doesn't happen as we projected because our models and our calculations are never perfect because we're dealing with human behavior. <laughs> we're dealing with a system that hasn't been completely defined. And, but I can't, I can't tell you how many times leaders would just, um, they wouldn't take a stand to say, it, they wouldn't take, they wouldn't spend the political capital and that I would rely way too much on the expert or the scientist to say, this is how it is moving forward. The reason why I bring that out, why I bring all this up is that it, 
we are we are rapidly coming into a situation where and what I mean by rapidly is like I think we're already there but it's going to get worse and worse and worse where we're taking the politics out of not the politics we're taking the decision making and the hard role of leadership out of running our society and we're putting all of that into the hands of the so-called experts and now we have experts on every side of every issue and they all go and they do their calculations and they say this is what's going to happen and you end up with experts upon experts upon experts and they take every you know every side of every issue and because now you have an expert on your side and you have an expert on the other side um, basically the leaders the that are instead of making hard decisions they are um, making a decision that's political expedient and um, it's just unfortunate because society was never meant to be that way we were meant to have good leaders that make good decisions not based upon their political expediency but best based upon what is best for our society what's the best for the situation and um, my prayer is is that God will continue to raise up in his world people who have a strong sense of conviction of what is right and what is wrong and what is best for the world and what is best for our community and people who will make the hard decisions that need to be made um, and people that can cut through uh, the experts and see whether or not the experts are giving you impartial and unbalanced opinion or whether or not they're modifying the opinion. You know, when I was uh, an engineer, you know, doing this kind of work, my my fee was paid for by the client who was trying to build the development. So I can't tell you how many times uh, there's a standard way to do one of these studies and you have to follow it to a T and it comes up to an answer and it does come up to an answer. But there are a lot of variables that can be manipulated and tweaked in getting to that answer. Uh, such that you could have an answer good or bad for that developer. And since I'm paid for, for by the developer, I was always constantly accused of being in the pocket of the developer. Well, you just, you're hired by the developer. You're going to say whatever he says you want him to say. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we have this in society too. I always tried to believe that I was somebody who was fair and impartial in coming up with my analysis. That that was probably the firm that uh, I say we created, but because uh, I was the first one in the firm besides the owner. But that was the number one kind of rule or mantra of our particular firm was that we would always do the analysis fair and equitably no matter where it took us. And so we gained a reputation as being that way. We lost a lot of work because of that reputation, but we also got a lot of respect from the community and the people that relied on really good answers. Um, but even anymore, I just don't know. I think that it's it's just all, it's hard, leadership is hard. Let me just put it that way. So that's why they come to Moses. Moses, uh, well, we'll just finish that. Moses, um, you know, why, why are you doing all this? Because the people come to me and seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Um, so then Moses' father-in-law replied, this is verse 17, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. 
The work is too heavy for you, and you cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them, these people, His decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judge for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, well, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Man, this is such good advice from Jethro. And we see this same thing. I mean, this is Leadership 101, right? You can't make every decision. So you have to set up some standards or some policies or some ideas of how it's going to move forward. And then you push those decisions as far down the chain as you possibly can. And this is true with governments. Like which government in Vail would be the best government? Right now it's Pima County because they're the closest to us. But if we ever created a town of Vail, uh, that government would be the best in making decisions for how we're moving forth, forward in our community because it's the government that's closest to the people. Uh, so the government that's closest to the people is the one that makes the best decision. And the one that's farthest away from the people, oh, let's say, you know, the, the president and the Senate and the House of Representatives, right? They're making policy. They're, they're so far removed from people, I don't even know if they know which direction is up and down anymore. And they make a lot of decisions, and I'm not sure they're at all decisions based upon blind justice, but they're decisions based upon their own power. And their power right now is the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And these parties have been around, been around for 100 years, and these parties rule the United States right now, okay? And I know we have presidents and we have Congress and we have House and Senate and all that sort of thing. But behind them are two longstanding political enemies and their whole entire goal is to wrestle power from the other people. And they don't care who they hurt or, or how that happens. All they care about is blind power. Now, you may think I'm a cynic in that, you may think that I am, um, uh, <laughs> you know, un, you know, my eyes are not opened enough to see it, but I, this is just how I believe that anybody who is in power, if they represent one of the political parties, there is a large machine behind them that makes a lot of the decisions. And that is the truth. Um, and then this whole idea of have them serve as hundreds, tens, thousands, you know, this, this is actually carried forward into the Roman Empire where you have centurions and you have uh, commanders, you know, and that was tens and hundreds and thousands. It was, it's a great structure where you let the decision be made at the lowest level. And if it can't be made at the lowest level, it gets bumped up one more. And if it can't get, then it's bumped up and same thing with the U.S. Army today. You have, what, staff sergeants and all that, and it gets all the way up to five-star generals, and then eventually it gets to the desk of the President of the United States. I mean, these are th this type of leadership is the only way to lead, and um, it's definitely carried forward in our society today, and it was carried forward at the time of Jesus, you know, in the Roman government. 
Uh, did this whole thing come from Jethro? Was Jethro the inventor of all this? I have no idea. But uh, just really quickly finish. Uh, verse 23, if you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided to themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. So, um, oh man, I didn't bring it up again. Sorry about that. Uh, So that is basically um, a great principle. It's, I call it an MBA principle, Masters of Business Administration. These are things you learn either from a course of MBA course or there's things that you learn from the School of Hard Knocks as you lead uh, in particular areas of your life. But you can't do it all. You have to rely on other people and you have to give them instruction and training about what they should do. And then you have to leave them alone to make these decisions. And then you have to support them and coach them. Um, and so I, th- I think we'll uh, leave it there. Um, I don't know if I have anything else. Yeah, let's just, we'll go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, gracious God, thank you for this great advice from Jethro. And uh, may this good advice not only um, help our world, but help our church and help our communities to grow and do better, better stuff. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.